Welcome to Cube Pushers, a podcast all about designer board and card games with a little bit of attitude. Here are your hosts, Bill Corey and Chris Dunbar. Welcome to Cube Pushers, the designer board and card game podcast with a little attitude. This is episode number one, recorded on August 6, 2012. I'm Bill Corey. And I'm Chris Dunbar. Welcome to the show, folks. If you've never listened to us before, we are a podcast all about designer board and card games. And if you don't know what that phrase means, well, do yourself a favor. Go back and listen to episode zero in the same feed where we take a few minutes and we go over what exactly that phrase means to us and what we're hoping to accomplish with this podcast. So we're going to assume you've done that now, so let's just dive right in. Let's start talking about the stuff we've been playing lately. Chris and I actually live a couple hours away from each other, so it's fun when we actually get to sit down and play games in the same room together, and we did exactly that last week. Uh, we got a couple games to the table, including Seven Sisters, the new hotness from Wishing Tree Games. Um, being released this year, actually, their big debut is at Gen Con, although they had a successful Kickstarter launch. Uh, was able to raise the money. Wishing Tree is a brand new company formed actually down my way. Uh, the president of the company is a personal friend of mine, which is awesome. And so he was able to get us a pre-release copy to play. And we got it to the table first thing on Tuesday night. So Chris, why don't you go ahead and tell the fine folks what kind of game Seven Sisters is? Well, Seven Sisters is a game that primarily revolves around hand management. Every round you're dealt a certain number of cards. Each round you're only going to be spending uh, or, or uh, using a certain number of those cards. You won't be using all of them, so you have to determine which cards you're going to not be using. You also have to adjust that based on what your opponents are doing. And you're playing your cards to influence one of Seven Sisters, or actually two of Seven Sisters, typically, uh, when you're playing a card. And uh, the Seven Sisters uh, represent the Seven Deadly Sins. And you're influencing them, trying to gain their favor. If you influence them or, or gain their favor uh, at the end of a turn, end of a round, you get some kind of bonus that, that is granted by that sister. It's uh, Each sister grants a different benefit. At the end of the round, you, you get your bonuses, which hopefully will help you uh, uh, outpace your opponents. And after four rounds, you are done. There you go. And then each favor that you've been granted from a sister is a victory point. You can get an extra bonus couple victory points for having the most leftover resources and for making what we lovingly refer to as the large straight, meaning getting a favor from all of the seven different sisters, which explains how Chris got completely dominated in the game and I crushed him like a grape. Just throwing that out. Yes. Yes, you did. There you go. So I'm and I'm throwing that in there, folks, because I want you to remember that when we start talking about our opinions of the games in just a minute or two here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So anyway, Wishing Tree is going to be selling the game to the general public at Gen Con, actually. They've got a booth at the big show coming up in a couple of weeks. So if you hear this before Gen Con and you're planning on going, make sure to check them out. They've got copies of the game there. But let's quickly hit on like what came in the box and what we thought of the game. I thought that the components were actually pretty good for a brand new company with you know their initial launch title. What did you think, Chris? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, and not even for a, a brand new company and in their debut title, I thought that they were, you know, I, I mean, they're not, you know, super, super high-end components, but they're, they're not, you know, some of these horrible experiences you hear of, you know, people having with these debut publishing, uh, these these brand new publishing companies and their debut games, and they, you know, come over on the boat from China with mold, and you know, their the die cuts are wrong, and Homesteaders from Tasty Menstrual Games is a really fine example yeah, of that. The, the first 
first printing of that game went horrible, and this is nothing like that. It is really, really, really good. Yeah, no, it turned out really well. Um, and, you know, the funny thing about it, I'm glad that you mentioned Homesteaders because that's the first thing that popped into my head when I was thinking about it, too. The funny thing is that Homesteaders, it, anybody that's listened to Episode Zero know that that's in your bio in 5. I mean, right. that's one of your favorite go-to games. So, you know, the idea that a company can survive past a bad print run is, you know, not unthinkable. But on the other hand, it's great to see a first-time company really hit it out of the park and get really good components into that box in the first try. I would say, component-wise, the only downside that I saw from Seven Sisters, and it's and it's a minor quibble, is yeah. uh, it's got one of those stereotypical folded-up cardboard inserts, and I hate those things. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but, you know, I'm, I'm a Plano junkie. I like putting everything in little boxes and baggies and stuff, and that's fine, and it all fits in there, but... Ugh. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they keep our garbage men employed, I guess, is about the only thing they accomplish. Man, oh man, I don't know. It's You know, like I said, I know that the amount of engineering that goes into making a really good insert is ridiculous, so I can't really blame them, I guess, for that, but it's, like I said, minor quibble. Yeah, well, even those molded plastic inserts, I typically throw most of those away, too. I just, I hate all that. I mean, I know no one wants to ship a game with nothing in the box, but... I just throw all that garbage away. Well, you know, and it's it what it I think a lot of it comes down to is the fact that the American consumer, well, really any consumer, but especially the American consumer, when they pay X amount of dollars for something, they have an expectation as to how big and how heavy the box is. I mean, you could get a copy of Seven Sisters almost into like a oh god, I don't know, a small like the box that Bonanza comes in. It would probably almost fit in there. You know, it's it could sure. be in a much smaller box, but then you wouldn't be able to charge the amount of money that you'd have to charge to sell the game. So I totally get that. You know, there's an expectation of size, which is sad but true. Yeah. But, I, but it's not as gratuitous as some of the other games, though, either. I mean, the <laughs> box isn't that much bigger than Race for the Galaxy, but, you know, Race for the Galaxy is also a quarter of the size component-wise as Seven Sisters. Yeah, very true, very true. Anybody have fond memories of the gigantic coffin boxes that Fantasy Flight used to put all their games in? Like, the first edition of Descent, when that came out, holy cow, that box was gigantic, and it was, like, literally two-thirds air. It was just right. ridiculous. So, you know, I mean, I guess... In the grand scheme of things, but it packed up nice, you know, everything fixed in the box well, so that was all right. I know that there has been one thing that a couple people have mentioned, which is the artwork that has been a little bit polarizing. I know a lot of people are not a big fans of it. I personally, I think that there were a couple pieces of art that didn't exactly suit my taste, but I thought that they conveyed the the theme of the, uh, the particular sister that was involved. Yeah, um, definitely. I did have an issue with a little bit of the, a couple of the graphic design choices. I think that there maybe could have been a couple better color palette choices in certain spots. There were a couple cards that it was easy to confuse this card against that card because of the like greed and gluttony leaps to mind. Um, they both are G's. One of them has an R in the background of the circle that has the G on it, but it's really easy to miss that. Yeah. And there was, I know for a fact at least one misplay over the span of that game that we played where, you know, somebody read the thing wrong and was like, oh, man, I thought I was playing this. Right, right. And also during the gameplay, you're placing your player color cubes on top of the sisters. The majority of the artwork on the sisters boards is tends to be fairly dark except for their dresses. And one of the player colors is black and yeah. black just gets lost on those boards unless you put it in a very exact position. Oh, but man, if we had a nickel for every time somebody made a poor choice on color choices, as a matter of fact, 
keep that, dear listener, in the back of your head because the next game we're going to talk to, man, if we can go crazy on player color choices and board design, we'll we'll hit the heck out of that in just a second. But yeah, yeah. By the way, I mean I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but that's a game published by the next game we're going to talk about is published by a very very respectable publishing company, and it was foolish compared to this debut game from Wishing Tree. Yeah, absolutely. I I totally agree. So, is it just me, Chris, or what, did you think that Seven Sisters feels like a refinement of other games i know that the game louis the 14th is the obvious one you know the it's in the Aaliyah small box series and it's got uh similar hand management mechanics and the influencing of different personalities and that sort of thing yeah yeah i had actually i had play tested seven sisters about three years ago before i ever touched louis the 14th mm-hmm. um, but louis the 14th comes really highly recommended so i eventually got a chance to play that yeah there's definitely some similarities there i i, I agree for sure you know, the other game that it actually just recently popped into my head that Seven Sisters has a little bit of a feel like, and you can feel free to blast me, is another one from your bio in five, which is Twilight Struggle. You've got a hand of cards, and you're going to have to play most of them over the span of your turn, you know, and so you have, really, it's just a matter of trying to make the hand of cards that you got dealt, you know, work with whatever strategy you need to pursue in order to make your score as optimized as possible. It's not exactly the same. I mean, obviously, Twilight Struggle has a lot more going on, but this is a much more streamlined game than that. But, you know, I, I had a similar feel to it. You know, you get a hand of cards, yeah. spend yeah. all, almost all of them, but not quite all, that, that, that. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that to a certain extent. I mean, in Twilight Struggle, there's definitely a kick-in-the-pants kind of feeling with a lot of the cards you're forced to play. Yeah, that's... Um, whereas in, in Seven Sisters, you're forced to play cards, but it's less optimal, but not necessarily horrible for That's you true. so but yeah no it's it's it has a similar feel and i learned really quick after round one in seven sisters but obviously didn't learn it well enough with my finishing score of six victory points <laughs> um but i learned really quick to not have a plan before i looked at my hand you, yeah. you definitely need to look at your hand and say okay that's what i'm doing this turn yeah yeah it's definitely one of those games that i i would say that overall i actually you know and i wasn't I'll be 100% honest, I playtested the game also, as a matter of fact, I believe both of our names actually appear in the playtesting credits in the rulebook. I, I playtested it and was not a gigantic fan of it, but I, I actually came up, came away from with it with a better opinion, I think, than I did playtesting. I really think that the better components and, the, I mean, you know, the tiles are nice, sturdy stuff, the punch-out tokens are good, the wood cubes are wood cubes, which is fine, you know, they weren't particularly good or bad. Um, the the player shields were a little bit sketchy. There was something about the way that they were cut that made mine at least tippy. I remember, you know, you're supposed to hide all your stuff behind there, and mine kept tipping, and things kind of scooted underneath the bottom of it, which I thought was annoying. But all in all, I, I thought it was okay. You know, it's it was a solid title. I think that Wishing Tree did a good job picking something that should, you know, hopefully sell well for them. I mean, I'm always looking you know, to get good press out for new game companies. And I think that they did a good job with this one. It's a good first title. Yeah, definitely. Last week I was kind of panning it when we were playing it. I know when I played uh, Playtested about three years ago, not a ton has changed from that to the final uh, copy, obviously, except for nice professional quality components. But I, I didn't enjoy it a ton when I was playing last week. But as I was trying to write up my thoughts on how I felt about the game earlier today, I, I was actually like, eh, it's not, it's not that bad. I would... I think I would definitely play that game occasionally. Yeah. Um, the couple small quibbles I have with it um, are that, and it's a really, really stupid one, I know, but I, I know I'm not the only person that feels this way either, is the stupidly low scores. It's like, you know, final, and I know it's a quick game, and it's only four rounds, and 
but like the final scores of like 14 and 13 and 10, I don't know, like maybe we should just like put a zero on the end or something <laughs> to make it like 140 to 130. I, I, that would just make me feel better, I guess. Also, I'm not a fan of hidden trackable information. That's not a, uh, a dig on this game at all. Basically, any game that ever has hidden trackable information, that's always going to be a con for me. Sure. I don't think anyone in our group is super competitive and or Rain Man-ish enough to... Uh, actually keep track of everything in their head and the player states of everybody, whether it's hidden or not. But that's just still frustrating. But then if you take that to the extreme, then with games like Ticket to Ride, you know, half of your hand is going to be laid out in front of you. If you don't want hidden trackable information, anytime you pull something from a card row, it's going to go face up in front of you. You know, the only hand you would keep hidden is stuff that you draw blindly. So once you look at it from that point of view, it's kind of absurd too. So yeah, it's, and you know, and that's a really polarizing issue that I know a lot of people have touched on in the past. As a matter of fact, I believe Tom Bass's podcast, The Dice Tower, actually just did an entire episode about it very recently within the last couple of weeks. So I know that there's a lot of people. Uh, we're going to get off topic here for just a second, but Chris, have you ever played Tigris and Euphrates, the Reiner Canizia classic? I played, I've played it once in dominated by really uh, experienced players yeah it was really awesome i think that's fun because that game actually has a lot of the stuff that you were just saying you don't particularly like yeah in games very low scores um lots of hidden trackable information things that if you wanted to you could take notes and know exactly where everybody is but all of those are really fundamental parts of that game so i just thought that was another thing that popped into my head as you were talking about it but yeah, no, that's very true. Um, and maybe your scores are low when you play, but... Oh, yeah, no, I, you know what? I have a geek list um, on Board Game Geek, actually, of games that I love and completely suck at, and Tigris and Euphrates is the number one title on that list for me. <laughs> I'm terrible at it. I think I've won exactly one game, and that's when I was running a demo in Mayfair Games' booth about five years ago for some people that had never played before. So that probably doesn't count, but... No, probably not. That's the closest I've ever come to winning, winning a game of it. I mean, I'm even talking about playing it on the iPad, and it's, it's just terrible. I suck. Wow, wow. But yeah, but I mean, that's, you know, same idea. So Sure. So, so, I tell so, you, so Seven Sisters, what, what do we think with our final opinion? You know what? I'm giving it a thumbs up. I think that it, it's a good, solid title. I think that it's um, not going to appeal to everybody. I think that there's a certain subset of gamers that are going to really like it. But if you're looking for something medium weight, you know, it's not super heavy. It's not real light you know it's it's i don't know i don't i think it's good i think it's i think you get good quality in the box i think the price point is about right i think it's a good title right yeah yeah i uh, on my uh rating system i give it about a six i only use a five point system so a six a six is is basically like a a, like a three on a one to five and uh it's, it's decent i i would not you know, recommend, you know, like, hey, let's play this. I can't wait to play it again, but I would, wouldn't would turn it down if uh, somebody suggested it. There you go. Nothing wrong with that. That's pretty close to a thumbs up in my book. So, yeah. Yeah. So, are we going to go with this binary uh, Siskel and Ebert system here? We, we can do, I, I would definitely give it a thumbs up. If it's a, only a one or a zero, I'll give it a one. You know, I guess, I guess th- there's nothing wrong with, with doing that. You know, we're not really looking to be like a review show. We just kind of want to give our opinions. And I thought it was good. Yeah. Good agreed. enough. So now let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, another game that we played was Heads of State. This is a release from Z-Man Games. Uh, it was released about four years ago in 2008. I suspect the game is out of print now, although I couldn't attest to that. God, I, I hope so. I got, Shut up. I got a copy of it uh, for free, actually. I was able to attend the, the very first Dice Tower convention in Orlando, Florida about a month ago, and the game was included in my welcome packet. Now, I don't know if what that should tell you right there about the game, a lot. That I'm sure that Tom was able to get him for cheap on Tanger or something like that. But so anyway, this is, uh, like I said, Heads of State, Z-Man Games, 2008. 
in a nutshell, how I tried to describe it to people, and this is probably a little off base, is, is a, it's a set collection game. Think Ticket to Ride. You're collecting sets of cards in order to be able to take over certain areas. It's an area majority game also. You're trying to keep control of one of the four European countries. I believe it's Britain, France, the German states, and Spain, right? Is that right? Correct, yep. Yeah. So you're trying to influence different nobles in these different countries in order to earn lots of victory points. That's ba- Or not, if you're me. Or not if you're you. Yeah, see, there's a recurring theme that you may notice here, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. So once yeah. let's talk about what comes in the box. Um, the first thing that I'm going to say is that this is probably the perfect example of some really good components and some really terrible components. And, I, you know, it's funny because there are parts of this game that I think they really hit it out of the park. And then there's parts of it that I was like, what were you thinking on this? I think there's some graphic design choices that leave a lot to be desired here. The artwork is... <laughs> Well, not good. That's that's what I'm gonna say. And I feel kind oh of... yeah, the oh artwork is horrible. It's I mean the the board, the art on the board, the map I guess is not it's horrendous. But the the primary components that you're using in the game are the cards and the royals that you're influencing. And oh my gosh, the portraits of these people are horrible. Um, if you've ever played any of the Flying Frog production games, like Last Night on Earth and right. And those games, it's sort of reminiscent of that style of art, but not as good. So you take that for what what you think it would mean there. I, it, like... Right, right. Well, I mean, in in those games, um, like yeah, Last Night on Earth and uh, those titles, there, they're actual. It's actual photography of their actors, right? Right. Where this is okay. First of all, it's photographs, full photographs of actors. So that implies that they probably like, you know, yeah. are. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and um, uh, Heads of State is photographs of the faces of, like, the designers or, like, some people on the team that designed the game, like, superimposed on top of, like, artwork. It's very <laughs> strange. It's like they took, like, this oil painting of, like, this bust of some royal from the 16th century and then erase the dude's face and put in some <laughs> random guy's face on it. It's horrible. Yeah, it it's... looks like something that, like, you can do at, like, some crappy little photo booth at Walmart or something. I don't even know, like, where you would find something so hokey. Yeah, it was... And, you know, and like Chris teased earlier when we were talking about Seven Sisters, this is a Z-Man production, and Z-Man pr- comes out with pretty good stuff. I mean, this is the company that brought you Agricola, for crying out loud. Agricola and Pandemic, and yeah. Yeah, so it's really surprising to see something like that come out of a company like that. But then for everything that's bad like that, you have something really good. Like, I thought the card art was fine. I didn't have any problem with the art on the cards. I think there were a couple typos, which were sort of disappointing. I hate it when you use bad editing. Yeah, well, especially considering that the designer is Australian, so, you know, it's not like he doesn't speak English. It's not like there was any translation issues, yeah. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there was, you know, there's nice, when you score points for pretty much any purpose in this game, there's a nice big chunky wooden piece that you keep in front of you to signify whatever points you just scored. And at the end of the game, it's really simple. You tally up all the point values of all the pieces you've collected. You add a couple bonuses for whatever you might, you know, having the most of this or that at the end of the game. And wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, you're done. And you've got your final score. I thought that was really cool, actually. I really enjoyed that. I like the big chunky wooden bits. Yeah. Yeah. But then you turn around and first off, they include a score tracker on the outside of the board, which makes no sense whatsoever. Nope. 
you don't need it. It's a second thing and it doesn't really serve a purpose except for helping you do math. And boy, oh boy, if you're playing games like this and you can't do math, that's probably not the game for you anyway. I would rather do math than play this game if that means anything. Will you stop that? Anyway, this just in, Chris didn't have a good time. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but the other thing that, that I thought was awful, and this is something, I don't know why any company would ever do this, but the colors that the players played were the same colors as the colors that were used to signify the different countries you were trying to take control of. So, for instance, I play red when I play board games more often than not. Red is also the color of Britain in this game. Well, just because I'm playing red doesn't mean I control Britain. As a matter of fact, it's exactly the opposite. So it got really confusing, especially when you're teaching it in the beginning. People get, you know, you give the guy, I want to play blue. Okay. And then you open up the board and blue is France. He's like, oh, I'm France. Oh man, I'm stuck between everybody. No, no, no. It doesn't work like that, but it's just a dumb choice. And it didn't need to be like that. There was just no, there was no reason to make a choice like that when you're making a game. It's not like there are only six colors in the world and you're stuck with these four of them. You know, you could have used anything and that just boggles the mind when companies do stuff like that. So I don't know what that was about. Um, And then the, the, the pieces that you used to actually played or play the nobles to the board, um, have your player color on them theoretically, but it's kind of hard to see at a distance, especially when you're, you know, the artwork is kind of busy and, as Chris mentioned, kind of bad. You know, plus there's a, every noble has his own background color to hopefully help you recognize which sort of noble that is besides what shape is his white powdery wig. You know, I just thought that there were some just really poor graphic design choices. The rule book is adequate, but not great. So it's just it's just such a weird combination of good and bad all in the same box. Right. Yeah. And the the artwork on the player pieces, I guess, wouldn't be so bad if you didn't need to rely on it so much to comprehend the game state at any given time. Yeah. I mean, in order to see who's controlling a particular area, you need to know who the heck that player is. And looking at the pieces, it's real hard to tell. Yeah. Um, actually, I this was my second time playing it in Chris's first. And after my first time playing it, the players that I had been playing with had had such a tough time that I actually brought some extra cubes and handed them out to the players to set them next to the nobles. So that way we could easily identify who owned which noble at any given moment because it was that hard to tell at a distance. So I was just, I don't know, some bad choices all the way around. So I don't know what that was about. Um, yeah, well, yeah. Of- and I mean, the, the mechanics aren't, you know, it, it, there's nothing there that stimulates me that much, really. Yeah. As far as, you know, the gameplay. It's a little on the derivative side. I didn't really feel like they were really breaking any new ground here. I thought that there were a couple interesting things, like the idea of you could do a quick point grab by just slapping a noble. If you're the first one to go to any particular spot, you get some points, and that's great. But if you you know, wanted to control the region, then you might want to have more guys here than there. And if you... Right. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, that was mildly interesting, but it, it just it takes too long. It takes longer than it should, first of all. And I know we were all new players except for you who had played it once previously. Um, the other three of us were just playing it for the first time, but still, it just it it seems like it takes longer than it should for what uh, is involved in the game. So all of those things might be wonderful if the game was only forty-five minutes to an hour, but the fact that it takes two hours to play, it just outstays its welcome. Yeah, it feels very repetitive, very repetitive. Every turn I'm doing the same thing. I can't do a lot of four planning because the state of the cards that I'm drawing from it, because basically it has this ticket to ride 
card draw mechanic, right? So, you, you know, it's changing, you know, by three players before it ever gets back to me again. So, yeah. yeah. Re- reminiscent of the problems that you have with games like Alhambra, too, where it's so hard yeah. to plan out your turn ahead of time because you'd have no idea what's going to be sitting there by the time your turn comes around. Right. I almost wonder if the game could benefit from a variant where, like, depending on the number of players that you had, the board started out in a specific state. Like, you know, maybe you started off with an initial, I have this and that, and you have that and that, and you have that and that. Okay, go. And maybe you shorten the game up. Because the first half of the game, for those of you that have never played it before, is basically populating the board. And then the second half of the game is murdering the crap out of each other and trying to take control from other people. So it's first half of the game is first come, first serve, and then after that it's a big fight. And I wonder if maybe getting rid of that first come first serve aspect of the game and maybe just having everybody have a starting position where, all right, I have an advantage in France, but you have an advantage in Britain and, you know, but I start with less guys because France is more valuable and maybe something like that would help. Yeah, I don't yeah know. It, it might, it might, but it's definitely nothing I would ever want to invest time in trying to improve. Yeah, there's there's always there, there's so many other things I'd rather do with my time, like, I don't know, paper cut my eyelids. <laughs> Um, you did have an interesting point, though, uh, you know, how it differs from the Ticket to Ride, you know, mechanic where you're just collecting sets of cards. You know, in Ticket to Ride, you're collecting, you know, typically all of one color or all of a couple different colors if, if the particular primary color you're trying to collect is, is not available at the time or whatever. Here, it's it's more of a rummy mechanic where each dude you have to play on the board requires a different combination of different cards. There's, what, like seven or eight different cards in the game. I think there's eight. Um, yeah, and there's, there's different combinations. Obviously, the less powerful guys require, you know, two or three cards, and the more powerful guys require, like, all of the cards. So that's you know, keeps it kind of interesting because you're not really sure who's going for what. You know, it's not obvious that, oh, he's going for that, you know, that six-length orange track over there. Right. Um, But, yeah, still not enough to ever make me want to play it again. Yeah, I hear that. Okay. So on our binary system that we were talking about before, this would be a thumbs down for you, Chris? Is that fair to say? Dude, I'm not even expending the energy to put my thumb anywhere. (laughs) See, and I'm caught in a weird spot on this one because I did not completely hate the game. I was kind of ambivalent to it, but I got it for free, so it's really hard for me to be mad about a game that I didn't pay anything for, you know? Well, I wouldn't be mad about it. I would would throw it in the next, you know, board game auction you attend and make five bucks off of it and point and laugh at the person who won your auction, and then everybody's happy. But see, the problem is my wife really liked the game, Chris. And she's part of the group that played it for the first time, and she enjoyed it. So this one might get a spot on my shelf just because my wife is willing to play it. She's on. Your wife also likes Kalis. That's a good okay. point. If my wife liked Kalis and my wife liked Heads of State, I would burn Heads of State while laughing maniacally and then play a game of Kalis. <laughs> okay, fair point. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. So moving on, um, th- I don't know if this applies to Chris exactly, but I have been playing the crap out of Kingsburg on my iPhone lately. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, it's a game... Uh, originally by Strata Libre, Strata Libre, I don't remember, it was something like that. Uh, it was originally published by Alpenworks Entertainment and then taken over by Fantasy Flight, I believe. It might be under a third publisher yet, but there's an iOS version that's been out for a little while. And uh, you play but, it on your iPad or your iPhone? Uh, I play it on the iPhone, but it's available for both. It's one of the really? apps. You can play it okay. on either one. Right on. 
Hey everybody, this is future Bill jumping in here. Um, I wanted to correct something that I said during the recording of this podcast. It actually is not a universal app. It's only available in the iPhone format, but you can play it on the iPad. It's just you do that whole blow up the screen thing to make it fill the entire iPad. So sorry about that, but I wanted to clear it up before I posted this. Thanks. And and I think that it's well, I don't want to I don't want to put the cart in front of the horse too much here, but I generally, I own an iPad also, and I play a fair number of board games on there from time to time. And most of those don't translate all that terribly well to the iPhone. I found that, you know, sometimes it's a little hard to see exactly what it is that you're supposed to be doing at any given moment. And this one actually does the job okay. It's not bad. Um, it, it falls down in one or two spots, which I think is a little bit annoying in a nutshell. If you've ever played Kingsburg before, the idea is that each player rolls three dice and then you allot those dice to spaces on the board to collect resources and hire soldiers and get uh, eventually build up your little section of the town a little bit better than everybody else, score more points, and then survive the attacks. The country gets attacked every year and during the wintertime, and if you survive the attacks, you might get a little bit, but if you lose, you lose a bunch. So it's more of one of those keeping where you are rather than gaining a bunch kind of mechanics. I think that for the most part, the game is solid. The, only big, the biggest problem that I have with it is that you can't see the board there's no actual representation of the board, at least on the iPhone. Um, I actually have not played this on the iPad yet, now that I think about it. I've played a bunch of other stuff, but not that. This has been phone only for me. But you can't actually see the entire board, so it's not easy to see where everyone has placed at any given time. So sometimes it's easy to screw up and save dice back for a future placement, not having realized that another player has already placed there. Of course, they show you where everybody placed, but... My memory is garbage, so I can't always remember, you know, oh, he played three, okay, he played six, okay, he played five, okay, now I'm going to play ten, now who's he's playing twelve, but, you know, it, it can be a lot to try and lock into your brain in a big hurry. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I get really frustrated with games where, like, electronic uh, translations of games where you can't see the whole board. Yeah, it's just not, you know, and, and there's some sacrifices that have to be made, but once you get used to it, that part's not terrible. I will yeah. say this, though, and this is a big call-out to anybody that does any app development anywhere in the universe, okay? Make your app smart enough to remember that I don't want the audio on and I don't want the hints on. Okay. Every time I launch the app, I should not have to once again remind it that I don't want to hear your crappy music and I don't need learner's hints every single time I play. There's not just a checkbox setting for that? Oh boy, wouldn't you think there would be? Holy no, there God. is. In the initial launch screen, there's a hints on audio on thing, but it doesn't remember it from launch to launch. So every right. time you launch it, you have to go back into that menu and turn them off. And, of course, the splash screen when you first launch the program has this wonderfully loud music that just blares right out of it at the moment. And you can't do anything about it because it's a splash screen. Probably. Correct. Awesome. So you basically have to mute your phone, then launch the program so that you can get past the annoying splash screen music and get into the thing where you can tell it to shut up. And then you can go unmute your phone after you've muted the software. It's annoying and it's unnecessary. And I know that there has to be a way to do that. So yeah, yeah. as long as we're uh, writing open letters to app developers out there, can we also have music and sounds off by default? How am I going to start up a game at work if the sounds <laughs> come on right away? It's so annoying. Maybe that's why they do it. Maybe it's like a secret alliance of workplaces that don't. Yes. Do yeah. They're, they're in cahoots with my middle manager to make sure I don't play their product. I'm sure that's it. <laughs> Well, hey, it's it's a better explanation than why they haven't done it at all. 
but yeah, no, I agree with you. So, but overall, I'd give Kingsburg on the iOS, at least on the iPhone, a thumbs up. I'll have to play it on the iPad and get back to you on whether the iPad implementation, because I didn't even think about it until afterwards. Uh, maybe, you know, some of those universal apps recognize which device you're on and change the format a little bit. So maybe on the iPad, you can see the whole board. That would get rid of one of the issues. But other than so that, you, how do you feel about the game in person when you play the real game? I think it's too long. Yeah, see, that's what I, I feel too. I, I, I had a copy of Kingsburg. I had a copy of To Forge Realm, which is the expansion, which I thought improved it uh, quite a bit. But then after that, it just became really repetitive for me because I couldn't ever talk myself out of not doing the same strategy every single time, even though To Forge Realm was supposed to help with that a lot. I just couldn't find myself doing it. So I got rid of it. But maybe in a, a, a digital environment like that where I can play against some AI, and obviously I assume the game plays substantially quicker Oh boy, does it ever. Like all electronic versions of any kind of game like that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, maybe it would be more palatable for me. So maybe uh, I would give it a, a thumbs down. In per- I don't give it a thumbs down in person, but I'm not going to be the first guy lining up to play it in person. Yeah. But a digital copy, I think that would probably be pretty enjoyable. Is the AI any good? or? It's not bad. It's not bad. I've won, I think, three out of the five games that I've played. And a couple, one of the games that I lost, I in literally, okay, you roll the dice 15 times in this game, and the highest roll that I had the entire game was an 11. Yeah, it's really nice. hard to win a dice game when you can't roll dice worth a damn. Yeah, and you know, games like Kingsburg and Alien Frontiers and uh, uh, Twa or Troyes or however people want to say it, um, <laughs> you know, it's supposed to mitigate low die rolls, but you know, there's still. Rolling high is still uh, fairly good in those games, even. Well, so I, a true a true test of the AI did did it ever roll a seventeen and then use its market to influence the king instead? Yes, actually, it did a couple times. But I am going to be one of those guys that's going to tell you that I don't think the king is always a bad choice compared to the queen. I know that a lot of people, common wisdom says that the queen is always better than the king, but I don't necessarily agree. It, if you take the king, you get three resources instead of two. You don't get to pick what the resources are. You just get the, the large straight, but you get more resources. You also get a soldier, which means you're effectively getting two actions for the buck instead of one. If you have pursued the military track, which lets you get extra soldiers every time you would gain a soldier, that means you get a second one. So in that circumstance, the king is much better because yeah, three sure. resources yep. and two soldiers. I don't know. I, I think that the, it's situational. I think that it's easy to knee-jerk and say that the queen is better, but I don't think that that's always the case. I really think it depends on where you're going with your game. Yeah, yeah. But I yeah, in, it, it does do that occasionally. And, and there have been a couple times when it has done exceptionally dumb things, like when you have a white die, which you can get either by building farms or by sucking real bad at the game, you get to roll that in addition to your three dice, but then you have to spend it with another die. Right, and can't the, it by itself. Yeah, and there's been a couple times that the computer has failed to do that. It's spent the three <laughs> colored dice doing something and been left with just a white die. And I'm like, really? <laughs> so that, but, but in general, the AI isn't terrible. It's not amazing, but it's not bad. Sure. Cool. It's not bad. So I, I give it a, I give it a tentative thumbs up. The most important thing I think that, that makes it better than the in-person game is that it doesn't outstay its welcome. I don't know about your games, Chris, but man, games of Kingsburg, especially when you got a full table would be like two and a half, three hour games. Which for right. where all you're doing yep. chucking dice is way too long. Yeah, I agree. Way too long. So, but on the on the iOS, I can usually knock out a game in half an hour, forty five minutes, and that's not too bad. That's okay. So I can I can deal with that. Right on. And there you go. 
All right, so let's move on to what's in the news. We got a couple big stories coming out. Uh, what do you think, Chris? Take it away. So yeah, we've uh, we we dug up a couple stories from some different sites that we found out there. Um, I guess I'll leave the Couriers one to you because you're a big fan of that game. Yeah, not not me so much. Uh, Griffin Games is uh, republishing or reprinting, I should say, three uh, Sid Saxon classics: uh, Sleuth, Venture, and Monad. Um, I haven't heard of Venture or Monad, but I've played Sleuth a few times, and I actually find that one really enjoyable. It's a you know a deduction game. You've got your little chart of stuff you're crossing off you know it's you know this is not possible because this is true or whatever and uh it's kind of fun it's you know it's kind of abstracted compared to some of those other deduction games um but it's enjoyable but i haven't played a lot of those other deduction games either like i haven't even played clue for crying out loud but i haven't played mystery of the abbey or i haven't played what's the what's the uh days of wonder mystery express yeah yeah i haven't played that um, what I hear. So, don't. but anyway, I I, fi- I find Sleuth enjoyable, so I thought it was kind of neat that that's uh, coming in. We have a copy in our game group. Uh, one of our older uh, gamers, one of our older gentlemen, uh, he has like like the original printing prototype, really? something. Yeah, Jim. Jim has a copy of that. So oh, that's cool. Um, so that's how I got to play it. So it's enjoyable, and it's nice to see this getting reprinted. So well, well, first off, we have to have Jim bring that because I've never played Sleuth, and I'm a bit, I'm a success, Sid Saxon fan. I love Acquire. I like Can't Stop. I think that's one of the all-time classics. Talk about a dice yeah. game that does not stay its welcome. Right. Um, I'm the Boss is good. There's, you know, a bunch of stuff that he's done in the past. Um, you know, rest, God rest his soul. So, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to hit, because the only one I have played, I believe, is Venture. And I really don't remember it that well, but I'm, but I'm pretty sure I've played that one. I think it's a, it's a card game, if I recall correctly, where you're building, uh, like, groups of this type or that type of business. Uh, by laying cards down and trying to complete sets. It actually sort of has like a weird kind of pit feel to it, but with a little bit more structure. I don't know how else to describe it, but right, I thought right. that, that one was okay, but I've never played the other two. I've never even heard of Monad. I don't know what that is. Yeah, means. me neither. Yeah, if I read the press release right, I think all three of these are, are card games okay, um, or, or card-ish games, you know, and um, yeah, I, I kind of have an affinity for card games. I've got, you know, my big card game box of wonder. And um, and and seeing that all three of these are going to be available in a set or individually, I think I might just go for the set. So I have yet, you know, three more games to put in that box to bring it up to like 17 games total in one box of Dominion. Yeah, I'm actually thinking that the set might be a big deal for me too. Uh, this, yeah, there, it's being released. Is it being released at Essen? I see that October 2012. Is it an Essen release? I'm assuming. Uh, I guess it probably could be. I mean, it doesn't seem like something that would require an Essen release, but yeah, that could be. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think that board game companies ever, if they're going to do an October release, and I would assume they're going to go to Essen, and Griffin Games is certainly big enough that I know they have a presence at Essen, so I can't imagine sure. why they wouldn't. Yeah, it makes sense. So I tell you what, since you teased to it, let's let's hit on it real fast here. There is a new Warriors expansion, and I think the reason that Chris is making me talk about this is because he doesn't want to try and stay this name. It's called Quest of the Gladiator. I don't know. Worst title. Gladiator. Yes, it's Gladiator. That's yep. terrible. I don't know, but you know what? I get the Q thing, and that's cute. But dear God, make the words uh, pronounceable, please. Anyway, I don't uh, get the Q. New Warriors but... expansion being released in November of 2012. So not an Essen release. That's interesting. I wonder if maybe they had a a production or delivery issue that delayed them because I can't imagine missing Essen 
with a quirk. Well, it's it's well, it's whiz kids. I mean, are they typically you know Essen kind of? I mean, hero clicks and stuff. Is that like a, something that would no, be Essen? But you have to remember, whiz kids has sort of reinvented themselves lately. I mean, they've got fleet captains, they've got mage knight, they've got yeah, warriors. True. They've kind of reinvented themselves and moved not just towards the clicks thing, but they're really in the board game market. They're trying. They're starting to become a serious player. Sure, sure. So I think that, you know, the, the, I, I just I find it odd that they're pushing back to November, but eh, whatever. Anyway, uh, the new expansion has six new creatures and two new spells, total of 40 custom dice. Hopefully they will pit, fit into the Quarmageddon box. If they don't, I'm going to write a nasty letter to somebody because the whole point of this Quarmageddon expansion was to give you a box that fits all the dice and keeps them sorted. So I swear to you, if they have screwed this one up, there is going to be an outpouring of rage from the nerds everywhere. Do you just wait? Um, it looks like they're also including a new feature called locking. Uh, dice are going to have a lock symbol on them, so that way the die can be placed in your special locked area that'll have multiple turn effects. It's basically the idea of a... Dominion Seaside kind yeah, of thing, it's, right? Yeah, it's Duration. Dominion Seaside, the dice version, for lack of yep. a better term. The only difference is that other players apparently can get rid of it by paying a couple quiddity. I think that's okay. I, um, you know, I think that Cormageddon, the rules fix that came with Cormageddon, um, when they rewrote the rules and presented quote unquote optional rules, which by the way, if you're not playing with these optional rules, don't bother. The base game is, it's clever and interesting for about an hour and then it's good, but the new rules really fix some stuff. Right. Um, I think that with the new rule set, uh, having some new spells and new creatures is going to be more compelling now because now there's a reason to care about everything that comes out, not just whatever the big bad is that showed up in this latest set. Sure, I will sure. say this, though. I wish they would increase the number of new spells compared to the new creatures. I think that for some reason that ratio feels off to me. I'd like to see them do more new spells per set and less new creatures so that way you can explore the older creatures more and the interactions I feel like the spells, there aren't as many represented. And I know that you only put three in a game as opposed to seven creatures or whatever. But I don't know. I just, I feel like there's need, that that ratio is a little off somehow. I'd like there to right. be more more on the spells front and less on the creatures. I think the creatures is, were probably okay. But right. That's just my opinion. Yeah. But I like Warriors. I own all the expansions. And I, you know, well, that's not true. I don't own the Quaxos expansion. I never picked that one up because it was like five cards and I didn't really think that that was worth worrying about, but um, I have Cormageddon and I've got the rise of the demons. And I think, I think the game is fine for what it is. You can't expect too much out of it, but if you're a Quarriers fan quest to the gladiator, did I say it right? Sure. Gladiator, the worst name ever. Seriously, look it up folks. If you don't believe me, Q L A D I A T O R. That is not a word. There are not enough vowels there. So anyway, quest for the gladiator coming out in November from WizKids. Yeah, I would love to be in the marketing department. I mean, seriously, easiest job in the world. <laughs> Just invent a word. Gotcha. Yeah. And where does the cube come from anyway? Because they're cubes. Is that the deal? They're dice. They're cubes, right? Um, I think that I I don't know. You know what? I know they have an origin story, and I feel like I've read it, and I don't remember, but I'm guessing that probably makes sense. I an know that... origin story for the for like the how the game came about, or an actual like background. story? Story there's both. The <laughs> Believe it or not, there's both. Although I will say this: the moment that Quarriers novels start being released, I'm checking out. I think that <laughs> right. 
Yes. No one's going to happen. You know it is. I mean, they've made novels for everything else. There's Magic the Gathering novels. There's Battletech novels. There's 40K novels. There's Warhammer novels. They've done it for every other game that's ever had more than two expansions. I can't see. I'm I'm sure there's probably Terranoth novels for Descent and Runebound and all that stuff coming. Yes, it yes. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Wow. All yeah, right. Okay. Ticket to Ride Fanboy. What's this new map? Ticket to Ride Fanboy. Uh, yes, not really. Uh, so yeah, there, there is though, uh, for people who do enjoy Ticket to Ride and it's a great game, solid game, whatever. I'm probably never going to play it again the rest of my life. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's fine. It's great for mothers and fathers and things like that. Um, mothers and let, <laughs> I, old people, I, I guess, I, I don't know. I'm whatever. Other people. Uh, people that aren't me, it's fine. <laughs> Alan R. Moon is classic and wonderful, but yeah, I don't ever need to play it again. I'll be perfectly happy. But nonetheless, the Legendary Asia maps have been released for the uh, digital versions of Ticket to Ride, so that's iOS, Mac, and PC, and also their web browser version. So uh, the the Legendary Asia map, it was also released as like a physical board uh, back last holiday season, I believe, December time frame. Sold out super quick because anything with Ticket to Ride on it sells out super quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it sounds like it not only you know is it new geography, but they've also added a new uh, little mechanic to it where it, there are mountain routes, uh, which I guess require you to expend more of your train pieces to establish a route. So to spend those train pieces, you get bonus points for them. I think it's like two per train that you have to spend extra. So you're actually getting more points for it, but because you're spending additional trains, uh, it accelerates the end of the game a little bit. So the game might end a little quicker or more surprisingly than it typically does. So that it is, sounds kind of interesting. I'm, I might give it a try sometime if I am drunk. I got Here's one thing, uh, Chris. Is it Ticket to Ride is actually one of the more successful designer games on the Xbox Marketplace. Um, as a matter of fact, I own it on there, and that's about the only play way I play it besides my iPhone. Do you yeah. know if the Xbox is getting the map update too? No, I haven't. I didn't see anything about uh, the Xbox. I saw iOS and then the Steam client, uh, the Valve's uh, Steam client. So that would be Mac and PC. And then the web. Um, I don't know if that would also include PlayStation 3, because I know they have the Steam client as well. Um, Xbox uh, does not have Steam, and I don't, I'm don't. i not sure if it's uh, included there. I don't know why it wouldn't be, but I didn't see it. Well, that's too bad, because I, I was going to say, um, when, you were talk- when we were talking about Kingsburg earlier, and you said that you think that you, know, you don't really need to play it anymore in person because it's outstays its welcome, but digitally you might give it a shot. I really enjoy Ticket to Ride on the Xbox. I don't know what it is, but there's something about that on the Xbox that I think is just it's just fun. It's not doesn't outstay its welcome. You can haul butt through a game. It's visually appealing, you know, there's sure. it's cute in spots. I don't know. I, I Yeah, they do, the Days of Wonder definitely does good work with their digital stuff. That's for yeah, sure. They do. Yeah, they do. Um, so does Fantasy Flight, actually. They've got a couple good stuff, too, but I'm saving that one for next week. <laughs> yep. All right. The last thing that we've got on our news feed today is a Kickstarter thing that I think has got both of our um, curiosities up called Soul Forge. This is a digital-only game being released for the iOS, the Apple iOS, and PCs. Um, it's not a border card game, but it's uh, from the makers of Ascension and Magic the Gathering. So Gary Games and His Highness Richard Garfield himself got together and made this sucker. Um, right. It's like the beta's coming out early next year, huh? Yeah, that's what they're shooting for. I mean, because this is a completely 
digital release. It's not a port of a of an analog game or anything like that. I mean, they're basically designing it from the ground up. They've got the they've not only got to design the artwork, but they've got to design you know the the intelligence to run the game and the distribution system. And there's supposed to be a trading system built into it. Obviously, a digital trading system. So it sounds like they really have their work cut out for them. So yeah, I I think that early 2013 sounds optimistic. I mean, that's like eight months away, but you know, it's only supposed to be a beta as well, um, which if you get it on the Kickstarter, you will uh, be able to beta test that when it is released. It just still sounds really optimistic to me. Yeah, doesn't that sound like saying the beta for early, to not even first quarter, just saying early, that sounds a lot like hedging our bets. Like, hey, if we get the money, we know we want to do this, we've got some great ideas, but boy, yeah. you're, you're right, the workload that's going to be ahead of them in order to even make this thing go is going to be is going to be really something. I, I know that you said, we, we said originally that it's not a board or a card game. I assume, I think that what we meant to say there, and I just want to clear this up before we, anybody gets confused, is that it's not, there isn't a cardboard version of this that you can go out and buy. It's digital only. But I think it is intended to play like a card game, right? Yeah, definitely. It's a, yeah, it's, an, it's a digital card game. Yep, for sure. Okay. okay. Um, and, and what do you know about the game? I mean, I, I've read a little bit, but I think that you've done a little more digging. Yeah, well, you know, they call it a DCG, which is digital collectible game. Okay. I don't know if this is a new genre that they're inventing, if there's other games out there like this right now. I'm not a huge Magic guy. I know how to play the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't find it particularly interesting for my taste. I guess I've just got my ass kicked against too many control decks for me to like it that much. <laughs> um but I, I do I do like Ascension. I obviously respect Richard Garfield quite a bit, so I, I kind of have high hopes for this. But nonetheless, yeah, they're calling it a digital collectible game. It's supposed to have some trading uh, built into it, so you can trade cards and collections with other players. There's not really any specificity yet as if you're going to have like a friends list that you can only play and trade with or if you can play and trade with anybody anonymously on the Internet that you happen to get into a game with. Um, it will be free to play, which sounds pretty interesting. And I um, think that's huge. I don't, I don't want to jump in here, but I think free to play is a really big deal right now because I think that whenever you make something collectible, asking for people to pay up front is just, you know, the freemium model is really going somewhere. I mean, I think that the iOS has really proved that, and I'm I'm glad to see that if we're already going to make it collectible and make it the rich get richer kind of game, that these sort of games can tend to be at least don't ding them for real money. So that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of dubious about the free-to-play thing. I mean, it sounds great and wonderful, but the fact that you can spend real money to get new cards, uh, probably better cards. I don't know. Maybe they aren't going to be better, but there's going to have to be some incentive there for people to want to spend money on these additional cards. Yeah. And if they, if they aren't better, maybe they're just new factions or cool art or something, but free to play. I mean, magic's free to play too. If you walk into a game store and some 13 year old leaves, you know, all the crappy cards sitting on the table, <laughs> I can take them for free and I can play. I'm going to play like crap, but you know, it's free to play. Eh. Um, so I, I, you know, we'll see. Uh, but it, it is, it's definitely uh, interesting. I, I'm giving a lot of credit. I think it's a, a new concept. And the fact that, and they mentioned this in their Kickstarter, which didn't really occur to me initially, but the fact that it's not uh, a translation or adaptation of a of a real world game kind of leaves it open to them. You know, they aren't restricted to the mechanics that could only happen with a physical card. Yeah, I agree. Um, so they've, they've got some different, you know, even though it's technically a card game, they've got some weird things that they can do to them. I guess some of the cards, um, they can transform. You know, the more copies you play of a card, the bigger it gets or whatever. Hmm. You know, if you play a, uh, play a, 
uh, a creature, I guess, for lack of a better word, you play a creature card and then you play another copy of that creature. It turns into an uber creature or level two or whatever the case may be. Okay. Uh, it sounds like on your turn you're just drawing five cards and you're playing two of them and throwing the other three away. There's no, there's no pay, there's no casting costs or anything for getting creatures on the on the table or anything. You just draw five cards, you play two, you discard three, and then every few turns uh, you shuffle up your deck. So you will be seeing those cards again. So it doesn't sound like there's going to be any kind of like you know milling options or anything like that with Magic. Yeah, that's good. You know, um, Richard Garfield has ever since Magic. I almost wonder if maybe he has a little bit of designer's remorse. <laughs> Not remorse, because I mean the guy made you know probably four boatloads of money. Up of magic, but you know, I noticed that most of the games that he's designed or had his hand in since magic have been a lot more simple. Like, for instance, King of Tokyo, which is one of the big hotnesses right now, as it, even by his own admission, is basically a Yahtzee retheme, just with you know, because he thought yeah. Yahtzee was a better game than people gave it credit for. And here's a fun way to play it that's different and has monsters beating each other up. Right. I think that maybe he's really been trying to dial things back and make them more simple and streamlined and just bring back the fun that he originally thought Magic was going to be instead of the juggernaut that it ended up becoming. I don't right. know. Right, yeah. The, the other game uh, I, I play of his that I really enjoy a lot is uh, Pecking Order. Actually, I just played it today uh, with my 7-year-old, and, and that's a, it's an interesting game. It's a super quick-playing two-player game. But um, it's got some interesting decisions, and uh, it's I like it. Some uh, bluffing. Uh, I like games where you can kind of bluff and, mm-hmm. and whatever. So um, Packing Order, it's a good quick-playing two-player game. You can play it with your 7-year-old and probably lose. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, but you can lose against anybody, Chris. That's almost not fair. That is quite true. <laughs> there you go. All right, so that's the news. Let's move on to Game versus Game. Uh, This week, as we were talking about in Episode Zero, and if you listen to that, we're going to be comparing two games that we think have some similarities. And boy, this week, these games have almost more similarities than they do differences. We're going to compare San Juan and Race for the Galaxy. San Juan was published by Rio Grande Games in 2004, designed by Andreas Seafarth, the same fella that developed Puerto Rico, the smash hit board game from Aaliyah. And then Race for the Galaxy, also published by Rio Grande, came out three years later in 2007 with Thomas Lehman as the designer. Right. So these games, I'll tell you what, both of them have very similar mechanics in many ways. The idea is that hand management is everything. You might be playing some cards, but you'll be spending other cards from your hand in order to pay for whatever cards you play, so on and so forth. That's a really big facet of both games. I think that that's... I was just going to say, I don't know if you've ever read, uh, you know, Thomas Lehman's uh, reasoning behind this, but supposedly he was contacted by Aaliyah to develop card game version of Puerto Rico mm-hmm. um, and came up with a lot of the concepts you see in San Juan. And for whatever reason or another, and again, I've only uh, read Thomas Lehman's version of the story, but for whatever reason, Aaliyah decided to put Andrea Seyfarth's name on San Juan, although most of the mechanics in San Juan are Thomas Lehman. So yeah. if, if that can be, uh, if that's actually true, then it makes a complete sense that the games are very much alike. It sounds like uh, Lehman was, uh, you know, a little bit jilted and decided, well, you know, screw you, I'll go do my own thing with the game that I spent so much time on. And he came up with Race for the Galaxy, which, I mean, uh, I'll put this out there right now, I think is a little bit superior to San Juan. Oh, not a little bit. It's a whole bunch superior. <laughs> That's not even a close race. I mean, yeah. I think that 
San Juan, San Juan has a couple interesting ideas, but there are so many things that go wrong with the, the design of that game. I think, I think that there are a couple cards that are just flat out broken um, in there that I just I can't imagine how any playtester greenlighted some of the stuff that happens in San Juan. I just and I you know I think I don't even remember what's it called the Guild Hall. Yeah, the the Guild Hall is is obviously the you know it's the it's the usual suspect for for being being called out as broken. I used to think that. I still think it kind of sort of. But I think if you're an experienced player that knows how to play a really solid. Uh, violet card, violet building strategy. I think you can have a really good chance, but yeah, if someone gets a guild hall early, yeah, it's it's probably almost game over. But yeah, yeah, and that's just and that you know. Whereas race for the galaxy, even though there are some cards that are you know significantly more powerful than others, perhaps the fact that the costs of those cards varies a lot more. I think the spread is better. So yeah. it allows for more granularity of deciding which game or which cards are going to be more or less easy to get to the table based on the power level. So Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you play Race for the Galaxy and you've got these big fat, you know, six cost uh, victory point and game scoring victory point developments, you know, each one is is going to be different uh, of different value to you depending on the current state of the game. Yes. And from game to game. You know, if you are dealt the guild hall early in San Juan, or not even necessarily early, because you probably don't want to sit on a six card that early, because you'll you'll be super slow. But if you get it fairly early, I mean, it's it's a no brainer. It's going to be worth a crap load of points no matter what the game state. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, unless you get a super late game and you haven't been building production buildings, obviously. Uh, with Race for the Galaxy, though, I mean, I, I I build different six developments all the time, just depending on what's happening that yeah. game. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, eight trillion different cards in, in Race for the Galaxy where San Juan is, is a set of cards that was released. I think maybe there's a, a small uh, Aaliyah expansion for it, and that's it. So, yeah. you know, the, the, the data set there is a lot smaller than Race for the Galaxy. Um, but, you know, I still really enjoy playing San Juan. I mean, it takes you know, it, it, play, it takes 20 minutes to play. Almost everybody knows how to play it. Um, in our game group anyway, I mean, not, uh, you know, I'm not going to find some bum on the street and play it with him, but, uh, we can, we can play it in our game group with everybody and they all know how to play it and play super quick. Everyone is fairly good at it. So yeah, it's, uh, it's decent, but race for the galaxy is, it's a refinement. It is. And you know, uh, a lot of times where I find myself playing San Juan is when I really want to play race for the galaxy, but I don't feel like teaching it. So I say, okay, here's some training wheels. Let's play San Juan. Okay. All right. And, you know, I guess that's a, that's actually a good point. I, I hadn't really thought about that, that San Juan might be a good entry level game. You know, like if you really want if race is your baby and you really want to play it, but, you you know, you want to teach the game and take baby steps towards it. Maybe San Juan would be an acceptable, acceptable. Yeah, because race for the galaxy, uh, the iconography is really hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around, myself included. Yeah. I obviously I've played a, it a ton now, so it, it's second nature to me. But the first 20 games, I'm like, what the hell does this icon mean? And boy, uh, and I got to tell you, every time they came out with an expansion, they changed the iconography too. Did you catch that? There would be a couple new icons, and now you have to go re, you know, it's like reinventing the wheel. Now, what does this fanned out thing of cards mean on in phase yeah, one? What the heck is right. that? What's with the little explosion thingies, and why yeah. does it matter if there's a moon on this card? And you yep. know, there's Lots of I I don't know they got a lot of information into a small package and I guess kudos to you for doing that but yeah 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, but yeah, if if someone's unfamiliar with like a role selection mechanic, or you know, a, a mechanic where you're spending, you know, the hand management of spending some cards to build other cards, if people are unfamiliar with that and they have to learn all of these symbols that don't seem that intuitive to myself, uh, yeah, start with San Juan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here, because it's been forever since I played San Juan, because basically as soon as Race for the Galaxy came out, I felt like I never had to play San Juan again. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, in San Juan, isn't each role only available to one player, similar to Puerto, how Puerto Rico works, rather? Whereas... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got the placards in the middle of the table, just like uh, just right. like Puerto Rico, right? So that that that's another uh, you know a bonus of how Race for the Galaxy is better. Well, for sure. you know, and I I'm think... going to play devil's advocate here. Even though I like Race better, I can see a lot of people that think that San Juan might have a more tactical feel to it because you can choose a role and therefore deny the other players the benefit of that role. Whereas in Race, anybody can basically do anything any turn. And so the importance of which role the other people around the table are going to play take is a little bit downplayed because it doesn't really matter. If you know that you need to play a world, you can just play your explore card or not explore, um, settle yeah. card and away you go. Whereas in San Juan, you know, if you really need that benefit from this thing, you have to kind of gauge, you know, whether you think the other guy is going to take it and when he's going to take it and whatever. So I think actually... In that aspect, San Juan may, God, I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud, but may even be slightly superior from a mechanical standpoint. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, but the other side of that, though, too, is that Race for the Galaxy now introduces, because of that, the, the, the strategy of being able to predict what the other players at the table are going to do. Sure. Why, why waste my turn settling if I know Joe Schmo sitting across from me is going to be settling? Yeah, and that, um, but see, I think if you're going to talk about that, though, like that particular mechanic, I think that there are other games that are a better choice to that implement that particular mechanic better than race. Like, for example, um, Eminent Domain, one of the games in my bio in five, I think does a better job of that. I think if you can, you know, figure out how to follow the other people as they're choosing your roles, Glory to Rome is another one. You know, I think it's more valuable in games like that than it is in a game like race. You know, in race, yes, that's great that you can do that, but because everybody has every option every turn, it's less meaningful to me. I don't know. Just somehow it feels like it, it feels like a little bit of a cheapening of the mechanic. That's just and, and don't get me wrong. I like race. I like race a lot. But I feel like I don't know. I almost wish that that placard mechanic was in race just to keep the game a little bit more tense. You sure, know, boy, sure. I really need this thing, and it's just not there because you can do whatever you want every turn. So yeah, yeah, I play a crapload of two-player race, and going from two-player race to multiplayer race is is uh, really kind of uh, a shuddering effect because yes, in, in, in two-player you get to play, you get to pick two roles. Yes, so it's wonderful. I can settle twice, or I can develop twice, and I can do you know all these wonderful things on my turn. And then you go to single-player, and it's like, oh man, I hope somebody else picks this role because I really need to do both. And maybe that's that explains the coloring of your opinion, you know, is that because you play two player all the time and then you get, you know, it feels more important when you're playing multiplayer. I almost never play that game two player. I think I've only ever played it with. No, I've played two maybe once or twice, but I would say sure. if I'm going to play a two player game of that ilk, I'll pull out eminent domain before I'll pull out race any day. Yeah. Um, but I think race is a better multiplayer game, whereas, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But okay, so what do we think? If you if you had to pick one, if you're stuck on an island and you only have San Juan or Race, which one are you going with, Chris? 
Well, who am I stuck on the island with? Is it someone who understands icons? Me. Is it someone who speaks it's me, English? Chris. You're oh. stuck on the island with me. Christ, if I'm stuck on the island with you, my last concern is what board game I have. <laughs> okay, fair point. Uh, okay, no, uh, I pick race. Yeah, me too. All right. Me too. I think it's just... A... Although I will say this. I would temper that by saying that if people insist on playing whatever that expansion is, whichever one that involves the prestige points... And those goofy extra point thingies. I hate that. Then I pick San Juan. Because right. I right. think that mechanic sucks. If, they, if yeah. they insist on playing with that, I would rather play San Juan. Even though I know, because at least San Juan, I know what to look out for. In right. race, with those stupid prestige things, somebody can get a lucky point draw, get one of those things faster than you can get them, and just run off with the game, and it's not even a close race. It's just it becomes... Yeah, I, I haven't played it enough to have that strong of an opinion <sighs> on it with, with that variant. Um, I can definitely see how that might be a an initial opinion. It's probably my initial opinion, but I'm wondering how that prestige kind of comes into... Uh, how that how it plays out with experienced players that have played with that a lot. I don't know. Um, no. I It, it kind of get, put a bad taste in my mouth, so I haven't cared to play with it. So Yeah, see, so. and that's exactly where I'm at. Remember when we were talking before about Heads of State and you said you don't want to spend the time to make the game better? That's yeah. sort of how I felt about that expansion. I don't really want to get better at it because I think that it just does something to the game the game doesn't need. As a matter of fact, I'll even be so bold as to say that I don't think the game – I think the game straight out of the box – with the possible exception of some of the added cards, but none of the added mechanics, is still the best version of race. I don't think you need to add direct conflict. I don't think you need to add, you know, the prestige thingy. I don't need you. I don't, it doesn't need that stuff. The game is elegant the way that it is. I think that game companies just want to come up with excuses to sell you more cards sometimes, and it's not always for the good of the game. Sometimes it's great. You know, I think that Settlers, Settlers of Catan with Cities and Knights is 47 times the game that regular Settlers is, but... You know, and sometimes, eh, just not this one. So I would say if we're just talking about the base game straight out of the box, I'll go with Race. If you start to include expansions, I'll probably go with San Juan. Yeah, yeah, I'd probably agree with that. All right, there you go. All right, so now on to our Guilty Pleasures segment. And because this game is a guilty pleasure for Chris and not for me, I'm going to turn it over to him so he can explain why he has grossly miscategorized this brilliant game. Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> oh, God, brilliant game. Okay, so Guilty Pleasures, first of all, it, it's basically a game that you want to punch yourself in the face for enjoying. <laughs> okay? It's a game that you have no right enjoying uh i mean it's a guilty pleasure everyone knows what a guilty pleasure is my guilty pleasure this week is risk legacy Ugh. it's Ugh. it's it's risk with it's with some legacy i guess <laughs> <laughs> there's the, the, so much for those uh, of you that have never seen what Risk Legacy is, in a nutshell, it is it is a Risk-like game. It has a world domination sort of aspect. You get armies marching around on the board, and the attacker can roll up to three dice, and the defender can roll two. So the mechanics of that part are similar, and that is literally where the similarities end. And I mean, the map, that's it. The map's the same. The map is not the same. The map is similar. Well, it's, it's basically the same map. Okay, it starts out the same. It's very true. Yeah, okay, that's right. It will may not remain the same. Very it good point. It won't remain the same. Because yeah. one of the things about Risk Legacy that makes it really unique is that in Risk Legacy, 
your the actions that you take in any given game have long-term consequences for future games. The idea is that the cards actually change, like stickers are applied to the cards to make them more powerful. Stickers are applied to the board to permanently alter the characteristics of given territories. Um, sometimes new sea lanes can be drawn onto the board with a marker. When you win a game, you actually sign the board, and that has an in-game effect next time you play. So yeah, that's the, fun. The game itself actually evolves. You actually get to name cities. You build cities and spots and and name them. What do we have? New Coke and Pepsi Clear or something. Pepsi Clear and yeah, we've got we've got yeah, I've got the whole uh, the I've got the the Coke Empire down in South America. There you go. And I think the the most compelling thing, at least for me, and maybe this is just the curious you know raccoon that wants to wash all his food in me coming out here, is when you open the box, one of the first things that you're going to notice is that there are sealed envelopes and compartments in that box, and you are, don't get to open them until you meet certain in-game conditions. Then you pop open that thing, and it actually will change the rules of the game. Like It'll actually have stickers that go into the rule book and will change things like how you set up the game or how many armies people get, or whatever. These The game actually evolves every single time you play it. Yep, and I, yeah, it does. I just think that's brilliant. So this is why I give him garbage for calling it a guilty pleasure. Because Let's just ask this. In interview format, Mr. Dunbar, yes. do you feel guilty for liking this game? Because it's risk. And when people say, oh, do you like risk, legacy, I have to say, yeah, that's why. I, I don't know. I mean, it feel it's like telling people I really enjoy Sh- Monopoly Sheboygan edition. <laughs> you know, it's still Monopoly at the end of the day. I, I feel that Risk Legacy is still Risk at the end of the day, but I, I guess I stick around with it because I want to see what the changes are going to be. Yeah. Um, we play with some different guys. You know, some people have a feeling you should play Risk Legacy from start to finish. Uh, and, and for those of you who don't know, start to finish is basically 15 games. Um, after 15 games, you should have everything open and all wonderful things uncovered and, and mm-hmm. whatever. Some people feel you should play start to finish with, with the same group of guys. Um, we've been playing with different guys. You and I have been involved in every game, but other than us two, it's been different people, mm-hmm. anywhere from three to five players. And uh, I think it's fun playing with different people, seeing their reaction to it, seeing how... Uh, the the factions you know get better or worse depending on the abilities they're given or maybe where they start mm-hmm. on the board stuff like that the drafting mechanic uh, that was oh I, I sorry spoiler alert yeah. um, but but there was a, a drafting mechanic added in uh, when it comes to determining turn order and stuff like that um, when you're setting up the game okay so I guess I like it more than a little mm-hmm. it's decent I would never play vanilla risk ever again probably in my life but this is enjoyable see i agree with that i think the vanilla risk is a waste of everybody's time really at the end of the day because it's so long and you almost always know who's going to win like halfway through the game it's just a matter of digging to the bitter end to actually have it acted out on the board but i think risk legacy really does something important for board gaming which i i think it, it it is the first game that i can think of ever that has real consequences for what you do I mean, when you play a game of risk, like I don't know, I'm talking real consequences, like your wife is going to leave you if you suck at this game. But, <laughs> you know, like if you, you know, play this card that creates an ammo shortage in a in a in a in this place to penalize the defender so that way you can conquer it better. Every game 
for the rest of this run of Risk Legacy, that place is going to have an ammo shortage. It lasts forever. These stickers don't right. come off. They're not right. meant to come off. Yeah, it, even though that decision may have just been tactical during that one play of the game yep. to give you the little benefit you needed in the next war you're about ready to wage, um, it is there permanently. Yes, that's neat. I mean, I definitely give it credit for that. I mean, all risk aspects of it aside, the 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 evolution of the game adding in new rules and all this new wonderful stuff to it uh, I think is really neat and something I hope other people do with other games. It almost sounds like a gimmick and I feel kind of almost guilty because it, it feels like a gimmick to me but I think it's a gimmick that works and I hope other people yeah. do it but I really don't think other people will except for maybe you know Hasbro doing it again. <laughs> Monopoly Legacy coming soon to a big box store near you. Right. Shoot, I might nice. play that. That'd be interesting if I, I can like yeah. I don't think, no, I think that's a terrible idea. Make Baltic Avenue, like, super awesome. All right, now this is scary because you're actually selling me on the idea a little bit, and it's freaking me out. Right, but... you can add, like, penny slot machines and stuff to, like, get, like, <laughs> all the white trash tourists. <laughs> nice, nice, there you go. All right. No, I think that, I think that, I un I guess, in a way, I understand the guilty pleasure part of it for you. I think, I think that the legacy aspect of it trumps the risk aspect of it for me. Um, yeah, I just sure. find myself always itching to open that next envelope and find out how the game has evolved. I think. Yeah, that... I mean, th yeah, there's been a couple times where it was one of the games I won, actually, uh -huh. where if I did something a little bit differently before I ended the game, which I had almost full control over at, at the point in the game, mm -hmm. um, we were going to be able to open something else. You know, if, if I eliminated, eliminated one additional player before eliminating the last player or whatever the case was. Right. Uh, we we're going to be able to open something extra. And so that's kind of fun, too, because now you're, you know, your your decisions are not entirely tactical or strategic. They're also like, oh, holy crap, I get to see what's in that envelope if I do this right now. Yeah, there's a little bit of metagame. There's actually been a couple times, Chris, that we've uh, done things in the game specifically because we knew that we would get to open a packet. If we, yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah. it was that we we're about to do, we're like, hmm, if we all do this, we get to open this thing and then see the cool stuff. And it's it you feel goofy kind of like really why do I care this much but it's just there's I, something so compelling about that envelope that's been sitting in that box top taunting you yep he's got to see what's in there so so there you go our guilty pleasure for the week risk legacy well that brings us to the end of episode one Chris we made it yay hey how do you like them apples I hope uh, we're not the only people that made it <laughs> yeah if you made it to the end of this podcast congratulations and we hope you'll listen next week. Uh, next week, we're going to give you a little teaser at the end of everyone so you know what you're tuning in for. Next week, our game versus game, we're going to talk about the Battlestar Galactica co-op game. And we're going to compare that versus Shadows over Camelot, the uh, probably the first of the co-ops, wouldn't you say? I think Shadows is probably the granddaddy, don't you think? Well, I don't know if it was the first of the co-ops, but it's definitely one of the big co-ops that came out and almost for sure one of the first co-ops that, that had a, a, a traitor aspect yeah. to it. Yeah, so Battlestar Galactica with the Cylons versus Shadows over Camelot with the Traitor. We're going to compare those two and, and let you know what we think. And then the Guilty Pleasure game for next week, you know, I've got it typed in in the notes here, but I think <laughs> I'm going to save it. Yeah, you better you better save it because no one's going to respect you if you tell them what it is now. I think I think that you're all just going to have to tune in next week to hear what uh, my guilty pleasure is. And this one is all me. I, as a matter of fact, I'm going to try real hard to even make Chris play it by next week so that way he doesn't. He at least can speak in something of an informed nature. You wait, buddy. Yeah, you wait. No, a... You're going to love it. Okay. So anyway, folks, thanks for listening to Cube Pushers. I'm Bill Corey. I'm Chris Dunbar. 
And thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later and keep gaming. Peace. You've been listening to Cube Pushers, a proud member of the Ghost Hat Podcast Network. All music for this episode is graciously provided by royaltyfreemusic.com. For more great entertainment, visit ghosthat.net or keep up with us two fools personally at cubepushers.com. Thanks for listening and keep gaming. Keep gaming.